Hello, I'm Maha Khan Phillips, editor of Professional Investor at CFA UK. Welcome to the latest episode of the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. This is a show for investment professionals focusing on a whole manner of topics and interesting insights that are affecting the profession today. In this episode, I am delighted to be in conversation with Dr. Tatiana Puhan. Tatiana is Managing Director and Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Tobam, where she leads the investment teams and contributes to the development of Tobam's maximum diversification strategies across equities, multi-asset, and fixed income. She is also a lecturer in finance at the University of Mannheim and an associated researcher of the Hamburg Financial Research Center. In 2017, Tobam became the first European asset manager to launch a Bitcoin mutual fund. It also runs the Tobam Bitcoin linked and blockchain equity strategy designed, it says, to provide investors with an exposure to the performance and diversification benefits of Bitcoin and the blockchain ecosystem. Today, we're going to be talking about the advent of digital assets and cryptocurrencies. And while anyone has seen the news lately, uh, we'll know that there's a lot to talk about in this space, particularly around volatility and performance. Our discussion will be focused on some of the implications for climate change and sustainability in particular. Welcome, Tatiana. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, it's my pleasure. Hello. Hello. Um, I'd like to start by defining the scope of the problem. How much of a challenge is this whole burgeoning area of digital innovation and the rise of cryptocurrencies? I've seen some stats that are very commonly used stats. Um, they may be misconceptions, but for example, the Cambridge Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index estimates that Bitcoin, which is the most widely mined cryptocurrency network, uses the same amount of electricity at the point of production as Belgium and Finland combined. And then there's stats for Ethereum, the second largest cryptocurrency network, uh, estimating to use a comparable energy consumption of Switzerland. Are these, uh, the, the scope of the challenge sounds pretty significant from those stats, but are they useful stats or are they stats that are quite quite uh, complex? Well, I think these are stats, you know, that look quite catchy. And, and this is, you know, why people, I think, like to sort of cite them. Um, but I personally, I'm not very scared of these stats. And, and I will tell you why. So um, to give you one example, when China actually decided, you know, to sort of move all of the Bitcoin mining out of the country, um, it was a matter of just a very short period of time. So just few weeks until you know all the mining activities actually had moved to other places in the world so what i mean with this is is that um, mining activities are very flexible in terms of where they are at what point in time um, and also they are very flexible to what type of energy um, sources they use so to give you an example um, for instance uh, in canada um, i mean we actually you know exchanged with a very big um, power producer and and they said so they they produce actually hydropower and they said well you know these mining companies that have you know started out here now they're actually quite good for us because they use the power that we cannot sell to the market um and points in time you know where there's not so much energy use um but we still produce it because we cannot just stop you know producing that power so they use this power actually and so for us from a profitability point of view this is much better and and so um in terms of renewable energy for instance um Cryptocurrency mining is actually, if you want, making renewable energy more profitable and hence, you know, making also maybe the decision to go towards more renewable energy easier in a way, because it can sort of cover up for certain inefficiencies that have existed so far because storage of energy and so on and renewable energy was always very difficult. And I'm also very confident, you know, that, um, you know, all this mining could very easily be switched 
um, you know, from one region to another, you know, where, more, where there's more or less renewable energy. So all of this, from my perspective, is not such a big deal. Now, if you look at Ethereum, which is going to change very soon from proof of work to proof of stake. Can you just um, stop and actually explain those concepts to us a little bit? Yeah, maybe we start with explaining what a miner is. So a miner sure. is not someone who goes into a mine and, uh, you know, is doing a hard job with lots of muscle uh, and so on. But if you want, the hard job in mining is actually that um, these people, um, they have to solve computational or their computers, actually, their servers have to solve computational problems that are actually um, sort of confirming transactions that are made on a network. And um, and th this is basically how transactions go through then on this network. And and only if they you know are able to solve this mathematical problem um, and and this confirms then the transaction, um, the transaction goes through. And so this takes a certain time and and um, and the longer this mathematical problem, the more energy is used actually by the servers. And um, and so this is actually you know what creates this need for for power um, in this whole mining process. And why are they actually called miners? Well. For solving this calculation, they get actually a remuneration. And so they're remunerated in new coins of this um, currency. So for instance, in new Bitcoins or a new uh, Ether and so on and so forth. And so, and so this is why they are mining, because um, by solving this calculation, they're actually um, receiving new coins of, of this cryptocurrency. And now in the proof of work, this is how it works. So there's like um, several people who are competing, you know, who will be the first to solve the problem and so many kind of clusters of servers they they compete against each other um, and, um, and and so this can potentially then um, be something that takes longer and also something that you know kind of requires more more computational powers on the other hand um, in proof of stake it is different so in proof of stake it's actually um, there's just a limited number of uh, validators who sort of um, need to to validate this transaction and so in general you know this is going to be a much lighter process which is going to require much less energy um and uh, and which is going to make also the um the transactions go through much faster and this is also one of the main reasons why ethereum actually switches from proof of work to proof of stake because it was always some sort of limiting factor to ethereum um and why actually there were alternative coins you know and alternative chains that have been developed to sort of make you know the validation of these transactions faster and to sort of overcome the problem of speed that Ethereum had. They in fact are saying that that's going to reduce their carbon emissions by 99%. Yes, exactly. Because of this sort of much easier process of you know how basically these transactions are uh, validated, that you know you don't have like a huge amount of people sort of trying to calculate things and making their service work. Um, and um, and so this is going to bring down enormously. Um, the power usage. Um, so, so that's that's for sure a, a side effect that this is going to have. Now, this is uh, not the main reason. On, I think this was not uh, like the driving reason. I think you know why um, this change has been done. I think the, the real reason is actually the speed in, in transaction processing, and also um, yeah, to some extent maybe some. You know thoughts about how um, the the community is going to evolve and so on, and how the comp competitiveness and the security of Ethereum is going to evolve going forward. So, so I think these were much more the driving factors than carbon emissions or um, power usage um, that um, you know drove that uh, decision. On the other hand, uh, there's another thing that I could mention. Um, so, for instance, what we are doing for our Bitcoin fund is that we calculate every year 
the carbon footprint of our uh, Bitcoin investments. And what we do is we compensate them actually. So um, as you can do for your equity portfolio or for your fixed income portfolio, or as you can do for your flight to, uh, you know, to Spain, um, you can actually uh, compute your carbon footprint for this um, Bitcoin, um, for, the, for the mining of the Bitcoins that you have in your portfolio. And you can um, compensate those emissions accordingly. So this is also something that uh, needs to be kept in mind. Um, and that is very clearly also something that an investor in who wants to be exposed to this asset class, for instance, to diversify um, his portfolio, could absolutely um, do in order to sort of uh, compensate for the fact that you know there are certain emissions involved in the mining of these uh, cryptocurrencies. So th this is interesting because then there's these initiatives that are you know working towards carbon reducing carbon emissions, whether intentionally or you know whether you as you call it a side effect or you know whether it is an intentional benefit or however however you position it. Um, but what does that mean for how this space is evolving? Um, we've seen obviously a lot of initiatives. Investors are very interested in this space. Uh, this is something that is challenging for them to wrap their heads around, it seems, the sustainability consideration. So what should they be thinking about before they make allocations or, or even think about investing in this space? Well, I would also, um, I would also think about it from, from a point of view that, you know, for instance, if, when you invest into Bitcoin, so the investment case is, is that you try to invest actually into something that helps to um, increase the diversification of a portfolio. And Bitcoin is some sort of, let's say, digital gold, okay? And so maybe the alternative then to investing in Bitcoin would be to invest into gold. Or, I mean, this used to be sort of the, you know, a way how, or this is how I usually compare, you know, invest, why you want, would want to invest into Bitcoin. I think for, for very similar reasons, why you would want actually to invest into gold. And, um, and now if you look at gold exploitation and, you know, so how basically, you know, um, gold is actually, um, Sort of extracted from the earth and and everything you know which is involved and so on if you look at the carbon emissions and and the other emissions you know that are involved here um i don't think that uh, gold has actually um a carbon footprint that is better than the carbon footprint of bitcoin actually it's worse plus you have actually um a huge topic about violation of human rights and so on that are involved you know um, in those countries where the, the gold mines are and so on and so forth. So there are huge, huge problems about this. And this is something that nobody talks about. So I think, you know, this argument about Bitcoin being bad because there are so many carbon emissions um, and so on in the mining, I think this is also quite a populistic discussion that we have. And um, and it's a very easy argument to make in a way, but but okay, then but then put let, let's put the facts on the table. What would be your alternative as an investor and uh, and is this alternative really cleaner than you know investing into Bitcoin? <laughs> so basically, there might be problems with Bitcoin, but there are certainly problems with gold as well. So um, that's yes. that's a, a, a equation that investors are going to have to solve. Yeah. Um, but but more widely, this is a very uh, obviously this is a there's been problems in this space. We've seen a lot of developments in this space, um, volatility in the space, but. There's the direction of travel is very clear, um, and certainly there's reports and statistics um, about investor appetite. And I've seen everything from, you know, 10% of allocations to digital currencies to 50% of allocations to digital currencies in the next uh, decade or so. So I mean, a, a range of information out there. Whether I don't know how um, accurate any of it is going to prove to be, but. Uh, 
as I say, the direction of travel is heading one way. Um, what, when, as this, as this space matures, what does that mean for ESG and sustainability? Well, first of all, I think, um, you know, for me, the biggest opportunity in, you know, this blockchain space is really that you use blockchain technology to make a lot of processes actually in a lot of different industries much more efficient. And for this, what you're doing is actually you're going to use smart contract infrastructure and uh, which are run on blockchains. Um, and this is, this is first of all, great news. And this is, by the way, also something that is not going to increase carbon emissions enormously or anything and so on. So, so first of all, I, I think there's huge potential here, but, but I would compare it, you know, to the internet. So we are today, like, you know, where the internet has been, let's say in the early nineties. So this whole space is going to develop and it's going to radically change, you know, how processes work in um, in our industries but this is going to take time you know this is going to take 10 years 15 years and so on and so on and, until you know there's full adoption and different use cases and so on and things stabilize also because there's still it's still a quite an immature um ecosystem and clearly there's also quite a lot of speculation going on and a little bit wild west and so on again you know a little bit the same thing like it was the case for for the internet um and uh, and while you know this ecosystem matures um, we will see more and more, you know, the real economic interest behind all of this. Um, and so I think that's that's very, very relevant. And now when we talk about ESG, I think, first of all, we need to talk about, you know, what, what do we actually really mean with this? So, so you know, to what extent um, are ESG factors relevant to a technology, you know, first of all, that we want to apply to, to make processes more efficient? So I think, um, you know, um, we need to be very precise here, you know, if we if we want to think about, you know, how this could come into play. So I think um, there's one one place where um, ESG factors play a, play a role, and this is everything which relates to decentralized finance. Um, so this is one use case of blockchain technology. You know, so blockchain technology can be used in industrials, in you know many other kind of more administrative tasks and so on and so forth. So I think here it's really it's purely technology, like a computer, like a you know whatever hardware. Um, but I think, you know, in the decentralized finance space, it, it is there where, you know, I think um, we need to be careful about who uses this technology um, that allows, you know, to sort of potentially make transactions um, that go through um, at the moment um, without being necessarily controlled by a regulator and so on and so forth. And I think this is, you know, what people are a bit worried about. And so I think here, first of all, um, what we see um, developing now is um, solutions. For instance, there's a provider which is called Chain Analysis. And what they're doing is actually they're screening um, the addresses that are, for instance, um, interacting with platforms where you can um, lend and, and borrow. And they try to see you know, how many of these um, ad addresses are actually uh, sort of bad guys, you know, and so and so they have really invested a lot into um, a lot of intelligence work into this, um, and they work together also very often when they're you know kind of investigations by secret services and so on, and uh, and you can use the services of these kind of providers to scan you know the platforms on which you want to invest your money, um, to see you know whether your money, for instance, that you provide on this platform would be taken by someone that is actually sort of a bad guy and who will potentially do, you know, buy stuff with this that, you know, you wouldn't want someone to buy with money that you provided, you know? Um, and so and so there are a lot of solutions now um, that are developing. Um, and I think from, from that perspective, I'm also actually pretty confident that, that we will have solutions here. 
Um, and also um, what we see at the same time is, is that regulators do come into the, into the, the game and that they do start to develop um, certain regulations to which you know, these platforms will also have to um, you know, sort of uh, agree or they will have to align with them and so on and so forth. Um, and so from that perspective, same, you know, the same thing a little bit like for the internet. Today, maybe some things are not yet fully regulated or a little bit wild west, but I think already in two years from now, this will have changed a lot. And, and, um, and so from my point of view, um, ESG or let's say um, things like money laundering or you know, um, with whom do I transact and so on, all of these questions, um, they will be much less of an issue already in two years from now. So that's really interesting. We are seeing a plethora of regulation being developed around the globe. Um, but one of the, the sort of criticisms has been that regulators um, react more slowly to uh, innovations and, uh, and that's a challenge. Do you think that uh, that, that is the, the case in, in, in this area or do you think that regulations will do a good job of addressing um, speed of technology? Yeah, so um, I think it's true that regulators are pretty late um, and, um, and I'm also someone I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a big believer in regulation to the extent that um, uh, overregulation can also be bad. And, and sometimes regulation is a lot of bureaucratic work where you don't really know, you know, why you actually do that or you don't really see the value. So, so that's why I'm also always very cautious actually to call for regulation. You know, so I'm a bit scared. On the one hand, I, I think there is a need for more regulation in that space because there's really very little so far. But on the other hand, I'm also always a bit scared, you know, when we talk about regulation or introducing new regulation because it's not always going into the right direction, especially when we talk about ESG regulation. So what I see at the moment, you know, the, all the new stuff that is issued, like uh, especially also in the traditional asset space, um, sometimes you, you just feel like it's just like more paperwork to do without any real added value. Um, and so I fear a little bit this, you know, I mean, I haven't really seen much concretely so far, you know, because again, regulators are a bit um, yeah, behind. Um, but I'm curious to see, you know, what, what they will come up with. And, um, and what I hope for is, is that they will still leave enough room for sort of entrepreneurial spirit to grow and, and also this, this ecosystem to evolve. And, and what we also have to be very um, clear about is, is there, there will be some more Darwinism. So we've seen, you know, the DPAC of UST earlier this year, we've seen, you know, a real shakeup in the digital um, currency ecosystem. And I think this is super healthy. You know, we need to go through these cycles. We need to see some Darwinism because this is going to show us eventually, um, you know, what are the parts of the system that are actually resilient and what are the parts of the system uh, that are not resilient. And that's a very normal process for everything which is new, for everything which is really disruptive. We've seen the same thing for the internet. I can just uh, make yet again, you know, this uh, comparison. And, uh, and I think investors in that space, they should be aware of this. So investors in that space, they should be aware of this, that this is something that has a huge potential, but it is also something where you still have uh, a lot of downside. And um, if you don't know what you're doing there, you know, it, it can potentially be dangerous for you. And, and I think that's also a little bit the problem that, you know, a lot of people, like especially like small investors, young investors, you know, I teach at university, I have these young students, they've been all super excited about cryptocurrency trading and so on. And so these guys um, usually they they don't really know what they're doing, you know. And um, and so and so um, this um, like a healthy amount of Darwinism, I think, is very good. And uh, and I don't think that regulation will ever be able to avoid this, anyways. And uh, so that's also why I'm not um, someone who says like, oh, 
you know, the state has to preserve uh, us of any harm and so on. No, it has to hurt sometimes. And then we will learn from that. And it's going to be um, actually very good for us because it, it will show what is resilient, what is not resilient, what should persist and, and what should be, you know, just uh, not adopted. I love that expression or that phrase, a healthy amount of Darwinism. That's great. But it does. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the early days of the internet. And I remember that so many of the companies and the and the areas that we thought were going to change the world are just, we don't even remember the names of some of those, you know, startups now. Yeah, but I think that's normal for, for disruptive innovation. I mean, if you go back in, in time, you know, think about... Um, the invention of um, of cars. Think about the invention of uh, trains, like uh, steam trains, electrical trains, and so on and so forth. Think about how many inventions people made, how many different models, you know, have been developed that didn't survive until today, you know. And um, and so I think that's completely normal, you know, when you have really disruptive innovation processes, um, and that's how it is. And um, and I think it's good, you know. And and I, and I think we should be open to that. And what I hope for is, is that the regulator really provides actually the ground for this innovation to grow uh, and to develop um, and that they're not just like killing everything and, um, and that they don't allow you know, for this to happen. Because again, I think purely from a technological point of view now, um, you know, not looking at the DeFi space, let's say, I think there's huge potential just you know, from, from an economic perspective from this technology. And, and so I think, um, you know, like uh, especially regulators, they should also be careful that they are not killing, you know, these initiatives and that they actually allow us to rely on, on such technology and to improve it and, and to, to learn it, to, to learn from also, um, you know, things that didn't work out um, so that we can actually make this uh, very useful for us. And this is perhaps an unfair question, given what you've just said, but um, there must be some things we can say about how far technology will take us in, say, 20 years time. So obviously we can't see exactly and predict exactly how uh, models will evolve and, and what will work and what will remain resilient. But given, given you know, the insight and analysis that you, you do every day, there must be some sense of what kind of, what kind of models or what, 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 what resiliency will look like and what disruption will look like. Well, I think that's super difficult to say. Okay. <laughs> I think it's even difficult to say, uh, you know, what we will see in, in, in five years from now or, you know, so 20 years from now, that's, that's super difficult to say. But what I'm pretty sure about is, is that, um, again, um, I believe that uh, blockchain technology will really serve us to, to change the way how a lot of operation processes work. Um, and this is going to be more and more adopted. Obviously, this takes time because you need to change, you know, everything and, and how it's uh, interconnected and so on and so forth. But from my perspective, also, you know, given the, you know, the kind of shortage of labor and sort of the need to make uh, businesses more scalable and all of this, it just makes total sense, you know, to, to rely even more on, on this kind of uh, technology. And so uh, from, from my point of view, um, if, we, if we, you know, have the same conversation again in 10 years from now, I think, uh, you know, you will see that there, there are actually many things that have already changed. I mean, there is already quite, you know, you could have a quite long list of different use cases that are already kind of now being applied or sometimes it's prototype, sometimes it's really already rolled out. And in 10 years from now, a lot of things will have changed massively. Just see what has changed from, let's say, in the last two years, you know, or, or since 2021 even. Um, just to give you an example. So, for instance, uh, if I look at this whole decentralized finance space, uh, this is something that has been at like zero, let's say, in 2020. 
Um, so nobody used this, nobody knew about it. And, um, and if you look at the total value locked in the decentralized finance space, Today, I mean, these are like very large digit billions of uh, of dollars, you know. So, so I think you know this this space is it's not stoppable in a way, and I hope also that regulators see this and that they are not going to just stupidly stop it. Um, and it is not stoppable because it does make sense. But again, we need to be aware that not everything which is in that space necessarily is good, and we shouldn't just sheepishly think, ah. Oh, there's something with crypto and something with blockchain, and this is great per se. No, we should, you know, we should ask the questions, we should do our due diligence, you know, we should sort of be careful about the risks that are involved. Um, but again, I, I think it's a great technology that has, you know, the potential actually um, to to also really boost growth for our economies. Because this is also something I've been wondering about actually for quite some time. You know, what is going to be the next big growth engine? um for uh, for our economies you know because i haven't seen any for quite some time and i believe you know this whole um digitalization um that can be sort of um that can be sort of uh triggered by you know using or adopting even more of this kind of technologies this is actually something that has great potential uh to boost growth even more um also in the future and the, the other thing is it has potential to harness that technology for sustainability in ways that maybe we haven't seen yet or we're only just beginning to see. Yes, I mean, for me, it's really the technology from my perspective is um, is really something that, you know, you will use in, in, let's say, operational use cases and so on. So it's not specifically something, you know, that where I would say, okay, this is going to, um, I mean, this is something that is going to um, help us a lot to become more sustainable and so on in our, in the way how we work or in the way how we, you know, um, invest or whatever. But clearly it is something that helps to become more transparent. Okay. And so potentially more transparency um, can also mean, you know, it helps to improve certain things, uh, you know, when it comes to good governance uh, and, and such topics. Metrics, measurements. Yes, metrics, measurements. So, so that's, for instance, something that is always a big issue, right? So data. Giving me good data so that I can actually have a relevant uh, have a relevant uh, assessment, you know, of um, a company or something like this. And so, yeah, for sure. And from that point of view, it, it could contribute to also to the sustainability efforts. So thank you so much, Tatiana. That was such an interesting discussion. I feel like you've challenged some of the misconceptions that I had about this space. So I really appreciate that. And thank you to everyone for listening. Remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.